Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for February 2016. I am writer hyphen R-rated superhero Lee Zachariah and with me as always is... Sophie Mayer, uh, I'm writer hyphen unemployed ex-childminder and on the show we are not only delighted but honoured and very excited to have as our guest... I'm Laura Mulvey and I'm delighted and honoured to be here and to have this opportunity for talking about probably one of my favourite directors of all time, Max Offerals. Well, we're very excited to get to that, but before we do, we're going to talk about a, a few of the films that came out in February. I'm going to start with one called 13 Hours. Laura, Sophie tells me, and you can let me know if this is correct or not, have you not heard of Michael Bay, no, the director? I, I haven't heard of Michael Bay. This is... Uh, this. <laughs> Okay, how do I describe School. it? There was a laboratory where some scientists wanted to see if they could take an explosion and give it sentience. And that's how Michael Bay was born. He is this bombastic American director who has... I don't even know how to sum him up. Well, he has a theory. He has a theoretical manifesto for his own filmmaking. He describes his filmmaking theory as, quote, fucking the frame. And you can feel it while you're watching the film. Any of his films, really, because they're, I mean, they're undeniably influential films. There is a true skill to them. I personally find them physically unwatchable, ugly things. And so I went into 13 Hours, which is about the now canonized assault on the US diplomatic compound in Libya in 2012. And it's possibly the most extraordinary film of the year. It's easily the most distilled, pure piece of propaganda I have ever seen in my life. It's it's not even what everyone feared it would be, which is this anti-Hillary Clinton rhetoric, uh, because it doesn't need to be, because these days you can just say the word Benghazi and everyone immediately thinks of Clinton testifying before the US Senate. It's far more disturbing than that. 13 Hours is the Randian ideal writ large. It, these are towering supermen, all white, uh, the last line of defence between civilization and the Libyans. The Libyans, by the way, who are all portrayed as either animalistic brutes or simpering children. But what's fascinating is how far Bay takes this good guy, bad guy narrative. The government men and women, the CIA operatives, are bureaucratic blowhards playing at spy, relishing their power. Uh, this isn't just the, the what we're used to with the brave American soldier narrative. This is this is about private security. It's about the privatized army and it should be an inconsistent mishmash of libertarianism and colonialism and capitalism, but he's managed to Frankenstein them into one weird consistent whole. You know, you've got CIA nerds have their book learning and their fancy diplomas, but our heroes are these good old boys who love their families, love America, and do not understand what they're doing there, but by God, you want them protecting you. Look, I'm not going to dispute Bayes' interpretation of the events because I'm sure he knows much more about it than me, and I'm sure he knows much more about the military than I will ever know, but I do know what manipulation and propaganda look like. Uh, there's a shot at the end which had me almost in tears of laughter, where after everything's gone down, there is the, the, the primary CIA antagonist looking and acting like a dazed child after this horrible thing has gone down, clutching a satchel that looks exactly like an oversized handbag. And Bay is trying so hard to infantilize him and emasculate him right to the end. Like, he couldn't even give him a bit of dignity at the end. It's just, I'm in awe of this film. It's amazing. And that also sounds like a reference to the final shot of um, Zero Dark Thirty, when Maya walks away, mm. instead of staying to savour her supposed triumph, mm. she it's just a solo shot of her walking away and she's carrying, she's got a bag with right. her. 
So it's a, it seems like it's also a response to the idea that Catherine Bigelow could possibly make a complex film mm. that has a combination of different political points. No, the only filmmaker you can have for American politics is M. Bay. That's a, I like that interpretation of it, but uh, I never want to see this film again. But my God, <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. But mm. onto uh, onto a bigger splash. There's no real segue between no. Thirteen Hours and a bigger splash. This is the new film from director Luca Guadagnino. Yeah, sorry. Do you want to say it, Sophie? Guadagnino. Guadagnino. Yep. It's Italian and it has a lot of consonants. Guadagnino. Guadagnino. Beautiful. Thank Just you, Laura. Guessing. <laughs> Uh, he made one of my favourite films the past few years with uh, I Am Love, and he's reunited with Tilda Swinton as well as mm. Ray Fiennes and Matthias Schoenartz and Dakota Johnson for a remake of Jacques Duret's La Piscine. Which he couldn't call Swimming Pool because François Ozon had already taken the title and the concept. And similar to the Ozon film, it's a psychosexual drama, a venture back into the murky waters of 1970s thrillers. Quite, in a way, a connection to Offul's. It has something of the feeling of The Deep End, which was the remake of uh, Offul's Reckless with Moment Tilda with Tilda. Yeah. Well. And she's playing yet another absolutely extraordinary character in her roster of extraordinary characters, a rock star called Marianne, who is something like a concatenation of Marianne Faithful, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, PJ Harvey, Bjork, everyone you can imagine wrapped up in one sp spangly silver jumpsuit, who has in a sense thrown over her moment on the stage. She's had surgery for a problem with her throat and is taking a break on the island, the volcanic island of Pantelleria with her boyfriend Paul, who is a documentary maker or a resting documentary maker when her ex Harry who is a record producer explodes into their lives with a young woman who may or may not be his daughter. I love his style. Um, I, he reminds me a lot of Paolo Sorrentino but where Sorrentino weaves I guess magical realism into the narrative, Guadagnino weaves it into I guess the technical style of his filmmaking. I feel like there are all these unmotivated camera movements and counterintuitive er edits that excite me and uh, reminds me of a lot of what Thelma Schoonmaker has been trying to sneak into American films for the last uh, 15 years. Yeah, I thought it was a, a beautiful film. I, I love the characters, I love the setting, I, I was aesthetically engaged with it, but I can't figure out if it lost me towards the end or not. The last third goes surprisingly conventional. Um, there's almost a sense of going through the, the, the motions of this standard genre plot and I don't know how I feel about that yet but um, mostly I adored the film, I adored um, Swinton and Fines together and I'm very glad that Hail Caesar is just around the corner. They are an amazing double act of incredible selfishness <laughs> um, and I want to give out a shout out to a film critic called Casper Salmon who wrote a brilliant blog uh, about the film asking what Guadagnino is doing with references to migrants, refugees arriving on Pantelleria which are dropped throughout the film until there are two moments where we see groups of refugees and they form um, a key part of a very strange character move on Guadagnino's part involving Marianne. So they're, without ever really being represented, they never, well, they do speak but their their voices aren't subtitled so we don't know what they're saying. They become stitched into the plot without really any agency and so that as 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 you say, Lee, the last act leaves you with this 
slightly strange feeling about whether the story got away from Guadagnino himself in what he's trying to say about these two alpha males locking horns with each other. With Laura here, it's very tempting to start talking about all the phallic imagery, <laughs> the enormous snakes and the pool pump, yeah, that, yes. um, where the, the pump hose starts filling mm. up mm. as the phallic power moves from Harry, then to Paul, and then really to Marianne, who is in control mm. uh, of the story at the end. But I think it has this really interesting idea of what it wants to say in the 21st century while using a film that com comes from the 1960s. It is trying to challenge the sexual politics of that film. And I think it doesn't quite hold Harry responsible enough for his bombast. And let's be honest, something I haven't seen said in any review, the fact he attempts to rape Marianne, which people just don't want to talk about. So it it is a very powerful psychosexual atmosphere throughout the film. Like Ozone Swimming Pool, it does conjure up this past era of pleasure and in taking its title from David Hockney, connects it both to, mm. to California and to a kind of queer energy between Harry and Paul that is, uh, even the film doesn't try and deny, but doesn't know quite what to do with. That's a film that I would, I would love to see. So it left me wanting, but feeling that if he could get his ideas in train, mm. there's, a, there's a lot going there and he is a, a superb director of actors. I, I hated I Am Love and I felt more compelled and more involved in this film. As Lee can testify, there were two moments where I actually ended up on the floor of the cinema oh, was with what was discomfort right, yes. during uh, the scene where Harry and his daughter sing Unforgettable together wrapped around each other That's in an Italian karaoke bar, which is one of the most uncomfortable scenes <laughs> In, in all of cinema. But also that song choice, because of the, you know, the Nat King Cole and the Natalie Cole, it was just, it was a work of genius that moment. <laughs> yeah, um, while all these... What's the other one? And, and, and the attempted rape, which yes. quotes a scene from The English Patient, which the film does throughout. There are several mm. references to Ray Fine's role in The English Patient that are kind of pastiched, but also perverted. I love The English Patient, sentimental, I know, but that one was uh, felt like a real betrayal to me of one of the most beautiful scenes in Anthony Minghella's film and just also throwing in a sort of hell is for hyphenates filmic uh, recognition there part of my feeling that the story was getting away from him at the end is this shot in the police station where Marianne is waiting to be interviewed and it quotes the poster shot from we need to talk about Kevin she's right. sitting slumped on the right. chairs yeah, with yeah. the green wall behind her and it's very similar to Lynn Ramsey's yeah. framing and you just think mm, how is Marianne the bad mother here what is it doing with this reference? Uh, you know, I wasn't entirely sure if the Vertigo visual references in I Am Love were directly referencing anything other than that aesthetic. You know, mm. was he actually saying anything about the character or did he just love that, that visual? So I was so. just going to say citationitis. Citationitis, <laughs> yes. Um, he definitely has a case of citationitis, but he seemed to be working on a star level, citing these films that are particularly attached to these two stars. And yeah, I think right. that's really interesting, because obviously with Vertigo there aren't any stars left for him to mm. recast. Speaking of alpha males locking horns, <laughs> I uh, did want to talk about an incredible Icelandic film called Hrutar, 
uh, or Rams, which has, I think, really exploded for London audiences. Um, it is about fashionable beards and knitwear and chopping wood, things that hipsters in Hoxton love, but this is set in rural Iceland. And it's not the sort of beauteous, dramatic Iceland of, of Game of Thrones. It's rural Iceland in the winter undergoing a serious case of scrapey. And yet it is the most absorbing Blackly comic and at the end incredibly moving drama. It's about two brothers, it's a very biblical story, two brothers whose farms are next to each other. They haven't spoken to each other for 20 years. It's silent, they can't deal with the mourning for their parents, so they've dealt with it by falling out. Their only communication is through uh, a dog owned by Gummi, who's the slightly more sociable of the brothers, who is one of the best dogs I have seen in film. Extremely good actor. Um, Lassie, we're talking Lassie levels here. But when the scrapey hits, obviously it brings them into a situation where they're going to have to collude if not actually work together and it's a very uncompromising film there's no sentimental ending very hard not to love I don't know whether to call it neorealism or naturalism it's very spare it's very simple but it has this incredible dry Icelandic sense of humor it's a real gem it's on the BFI player so you don't have to be in a hipster cinema in Hoxton to um, access it and um, foreign language cinema really suffered in the UK last year so this is a chance to to grab something with subtitles that you know it's not Scandi Noir but it's definitely Scandi Dark and um, you'll love it. Awesome. So Laura have we convinced you to uh, watch any of the three films yes, we talked about? Yes, I can't wait to watch all three of them for all different reasons. Excellent. It's an extraordinary triptych that you've drawn up here with two male dramas with a melodrama in the middle. That's true. Yeah, I I think Guadagnino must be an Offals fan. Yes. He does love these incredibly powerful female characters who are lovers and and men who end up fighting over her. I was really embarrassed when Sophie and Lee asked me to do this podcast and I realised how out of completely out of date, out of touch I am with contemporary cinema. And although I'm delighted to talk about uh, Max Offals and I'm very interested in his films, it did seem to underline to me that I'm still living in the past. I once gave a lecture called 50 Years in the 1950s, which seemed to sum up my relationship with cinema. Not one that I was particularly proud of, but one that I find that as time passes, it's almost harder for me to pull myself out of my roots and to get into contemporary cinema. I mean, there is uh, there are exceptions to this, and of course, when Sophie and I first discussed the podcast, uh, we thought we might discuss uh, Rakshan Beni Etimad, who is an Iranian director who I admire enormously, but we couldn't get hold of enough of her films. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not completely uh, out of touch, uh, but I don't keep up with new releases, and that's, I suppose, what points to uh, a, a condition of non-cinematic being. <laughs> Oh dear. Well, that's actually, I don't think you're entirely alone on this, because one thing that Sophie and I have been discussing lately is that we've both sort of felt a fatigue with new releases. Now, for a few years, I, for reasons that uh, baffle me now, I obsessively tried to watch everything that came out. I wanted to see every new release, 
and uh, then I discovered life is finite. Uh, so I stopped. You know, I've continued hyphenates because the, the whole point of the show, uh, when, it, when it began, was to discover older films and discover classics and hidden gems that we may have otherwise have missed. And I find that generally more rewarding, not because of some knee-jerk, old is better than new reaction, but because it kind of allows the dust to settle and it allows the cream to rise to the top, to mix my metaphors. Um, it's... <laughs> It's not a flawless system. Uh, we, we, we had to pick a way to explore the past and we decided to go with auteur theory, which is equally useful for finding these unseen gems as it is for excluding them. I'm, I'm going to pick up on, on that and what, what it is of the past as well as the present that's accessible to us. So a filmmaker like Rakshan Benny Esamad, who's a, a modern master working across documentary and fiction, who's... Um, also mentored a generation of younger Iranian filmmakers, we should be able to see her films on DVD in the same way that we can see Samira Mahmoud's films from Artificial Eye, and very few of them are available. And that she's a living filmmaker who had a film at the London Film Festival only a few years ago and has had films in, at Melbourne and Sydney as well. In fact, she's very popular with, with Australian audiences. So this business of, you know, the past is a different country, but it is bordered and exclusive like that. So the past that's available to us from, from cinema's history is actually quite limited. I remember when I started teaching being told that there were films that were on Laserdisc that weren't on DVD. And in fact, my first teaching experience was seeing my first ever laser disc, my first day in the classroom, and not knowing how to use it. We think, you know, the past is out there, and I think YouTube and Vimeo and so on give us this illusion that we have access to the back catalogue of cinema. Obviously, some films were destroyed before they could ever be digitised or have been lost. Um, the BFI are campaigning to restore um, the Hitchcock 9, I think they're yes. calling them. But then even more recent filmmakers, so Elaine May, for example, there's only certain of her films that are accessible on DVD, and however much you love her, and it often tends to be women or filmmakers of colour whose work is less accessible, they can't fully be part of your film history, as you said, auteur theory can lead you to, to exclude gems, just because you can't get hold of them, so... I feel, I feel really frustrated in both directions. I love going to festivals and seeing new films by new filmmakers. I'm seeing Mustang um, by Denis Ganser Ergoven on Sunday, which is one of the nominees for Best Foreign Film. Um, incredibly exciting. It's a good alternative to being at the Oscars. I will be watching the only film by a woman of colour that's been nominated for a feature Oscar. So I get excited by festivals and new films and then worry that those new films are going to disappear and parts of the past I'm excited about are often hard to access. I would love to be in New York this week to see the restored 35mm print of Lizzie Borden's legendary uh, radical science fiction film Born in Flames, um, which Milestone Films will be putting out on DVD. But I think there's another point here not to talk just about my lack of uh, engagement with what's coming out at the moment, but Sonali Joshi, who runs a small distribution company called Day for Night, came to talk to my seminar group on Monday, and she was saying that it's extremely difficult to get not high-profile art films exhibited at all. It's almost impossible, and all you can do really is hope to go to DVD. So just alongside the question of what are we seeing, there is also the question that uh, lots of films just aren't actually appearing in the cinema. 
So, so could that be one of the reasons why we might be feeling fatigue of new releases? It's that, despite this idea, this very general idea that everything is accessible all the time, we can log on to, you know, BFI Player, or we can go to the local art house mm. cinema, or we can, you know, order a DVD, that everything's available, that the reality is that it isn't, and it's affecting both new releases and older films, but possibly new releases more. We're mm. more limited mm. in what we can see in that drains the excitement. And I think we are still, as we have since the early 1920s, suffering from Hollywood dominance. Mm. I want to throw in a mention here for an organisation called Our Screen, which lets you book films. So if enough people come together and say, we want this film to screen at this venue, the screening happens. So it's based on an American project called Tug, the idea being that you tug the film towards you. And a number of documentaries have used this, and a, a brilliant Pakistani film that I saw at the London Film Festival called Duktar, which was actually Pakistan's first entry, official entry for the Oscars for several decades. Um, they did an hour screen based tour of the UK and basically where there was strong community support it had a lively screening with people shouting at the screen and and where it didn't it didn't so everyone is still trying to find ways for these interesting films to find their communities and I think that's part of the fatigue as well that it's really overwhelming because you don't always know everything that's going on and you just fall into well I'm gonna look on Flickster and see what's in my local area oh it's the same three films and an NT Live. So, Laura, you have chosen to talk about Max Ophel's on the show this month. Uh, what, what led you to that decision? That's both a simple and a complicated question. It's simple in that I've been thinking a lot about him recently. And so if I wanted to give quite a considered reflection on a particular director, he was my obvious choice. Mm-hmm. But it's complicated in that he is one of the very great directors of the Kaiju Cinema Pantheon, who they defended when he was down. And I was introduced, really, to very serious film-going by following the Kaiju Cinema orthodox line. So he takes me back to the early days of my... 1960s love of, of, of cinema and he was someone who we admired enormously for his style and had always stayed with me. Uh, there were two things I wanted to say uh, as an introduction. First of all from the point of view of the present perspective, nowadays I find as I no doubt so many people do of my generation enormous waves of sadness about the loss of the sense of utopian optimism that accompanied the dream of modernity and modernism. And in many ways, Offal's stands for that aspiration, but also the tragic ways in which uh, it became so unachievable. That's not, of course, the whole story, because he died in 1956, and there were was, was some very good kind of progressive years after that. But just the story of his life seems to me to touch on uh, so many of those questions about modernism and also about modernity when he shifted into working with the cinema, what did that mean, and also the way his own life was 
literally kind of riven by the history through which he was living. So, in some ways, looking back on Offal's now, I'm almost as interested in his life mm -hmm. and what he, how his life affected his cinema, but I also love his cinema. And I love it. And this was the second point I was going to make, which I'll make very quickly now, because I think his really passionate interest in masculinities and femininities, his very insightful reflections on sexuality, desire and death, make him one of the great modernist filmmakers. So before he worked in film, he, he directed over 200... Plays. plays. I mean, yeah. this is someone with just enormous energy yeah. and appetite. Well, I could perhaps even, it might be worth going back even uh, beyond that. One of the ways I see Offal's as touching on the more inspiring aspects of the modern world was his internationalism. And in some ways you could trace that back to an accident of birth, two accidents of birth. One... He came from a Jewish, high bourgeois, entrepreneurial family with the kind of built-in sophistication and internationalism that would go with that, born in 1902. Secondly, he was born in Saarbrücken, which is this little kind of parcel of land between Germany and France, which over its history has passed backwards and forwards between the two. Mainly it was German, and Offals grew up as Maximilian Oppenheimer, mm -hmm. uh, as German-speaking, but also you know, switching very easily into French. And Charles Berli, who is one of the Cahiers critics who loved Offals and wrote the first ever little book on Offals, points out, and I was very struck by this when I found it, that the River Rhine runs right the way down through Saarbrücken. And Béarlier claims that it's the central spine of Europe down which intellectuals travelled, monks travelled, poets travelled, trade travelled. And he calls Max Offals an homme du Rhin, a man of the Rhine. <laughs> pointing out you know, the importance of this European, trans-European consciousness which he was born with. But then, falling in love with the theatre and not wanting to embarrass his uh, very respectable family, he changed his name to Max Offels, and as Sophie Stead, started working all over Germany in the little Stadttheaters. And one of the things that I feel is a great research question is to find out what he did in the theatre, and at the same time, perhaps, to throw in for good measure, what was Douglas Sirk doing simultaneously? They were both working in the theatre in Germany, in the Staatstheaters, and someone should be finding out uh, this background history. I can only stutter through German, and so I haven't read Offals's um, draft of his autobiography mm -hmm. on his earlier days. I don't think he says much about the theatre. And that investment in the modernism of the 1920s and also in the culture of Weimar mm. and which came to stand for everything that Nazism and fascism hated and wanted to eradicate from German culture it was something that he was steeped in. Leaping forward to, to the films, 
part of what's fascinating is that he seems to arrive in cinema fully formed. That his first feature is about a film crew, and he seems to already be in the companies in love. He seems to already be incredibly knowing about how films work, how mm. film sets work. Mm. Obviously, certain psychosexual aspects that relate to the theatre. There's a female star who all the men in the company proposition one after the other in a series of the tracking shots that would become his his marker. But it's it's almost like Singing in the Rain in its consciousness of, of how films are made. It's called The Companies in Love. And then his second film, he goes back and directs an operetta, yes. The Bartered Bride. So these two sides. He's, he's not one of these theatre directors oh, well, who does this incredibly theatrical... Yes. Stiff. Yes. It might be worth just uh, pointing out that uh, Ovrels had no interest in the cinema until it learned to talk. It was only the synchronised cinema that appealed to him. And he finally made it to Berlin as a theatre director. And then in Berlin, as the talkies came in, he started to kind of drift towards uh, uh, Ufa. And we won't go into that whole process because it's not so interesting, but I think you're quite right. It's fascinating that he started, as it were, fully-fledged. Mm -hmm. A side note, the, the Barton, speaking of Ufa, the great German film studio, there's a cameo by uh, Max Schreck in The Barton Bride, in one of his very few speaking roles, playing an Indian entertainer. We'll just gloss over the politics of that, <laughs> but if you've ever wanted to see Nosferatu speak, very briefly. Yeah. Um, it's a really charming, very on-stagey, very naturalistic mm. version of a, of a famous operetta. Um, and music is a huge concern yeah. for mm. Offals. And sound in And general. sound in general. It's not mm. just people speaking, but every film begins with a sort of musical yes. con conjuration. Mm. But I also think that it's interesting uh, that very often that interest in music also combines with an interest in technology, if you've noticed that. Uh, if you remember, the musical opening of La Signora di Tutti is um, Gabi's song on the gramophone, which the, her agent, the director, producer, are uh, fighting over. Do, is um, it, I wonder if that's the first instance in film of what's become a very common shot now of a needle dropping on a record and a record mm. rotating, but rather than, as it does now, symbolising nostalgia in uh, La Signora di Tutti, it's the, the sine qua known of modernity. Exactly, yes. Um, and I think I'm going to put, put it out there, one of Offal's big themes for me is fate, mm -hmm. yes. that we're fated to go round in the groove of our life, mm. and it's right there at the beginning of La Signora di Tutti, he also makes a film called La Ronde, mm -hmm. So I think he's, in a, in a very old-fashioned, pre-modernist way, he's very interested in fate. I hadn't actually thought of it uh, so much like that. I'd, uh, and strangely enough, I'd thought of the concept of fate more in terms of Cirque, where, in a sense, the accidents of your birth, your class, your race, become fate, because, in a sense, in the everyday life of... Um, the oppressed, you can't necessarily overcome those conditions. So fate and class can come, become almost brought together in the sense that fate is the drama, as it were, and class is the underlying, as it were, uh, message of the movie. But I think here, 
I, I tended to think about it a little bit more in terms of these questions of of gender and the psychodynamics. And I just wanted to say a little bit about Orful's first successful feature film, Liebelei, uh, adapted from the Schnitzler play of 1895. Those of us who care to think about such things might like to remember that it's the year of studies in hysteria. Uh, and Schnitzler, of course, was interested in and, and uh, knew Freud. Liebelei is a very important film for me. Have you two watched it? Yes. Yes. It, it's very important in that it becomes a prototype for themes that he returned to at different moments during his career. To my mind, he remade the movie as Letter from an Unknown Woman in Hollywood in 1947 or whenever it was, and then remade it again as Madame Du mm -hmm. in 1953. But in each case, he made crucial changes to the original stories that he adapted, which made the repetition, the remake, possible. If he'd just made the original stories, they wouldn't have been a remake. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to say something about that because it's one of the questions that hovers for me over Orfalls, just in terms of these three films, and then we can go on to talk about other things in particular. Why did he do this? If Liebelei has a plot which revolves around a fantasiac drama of an adulterous love which is resolved by a duel in which the wronged husband kills the lover. First question, why did Offwells change the original play so that the wronged husband, who is just simply described as a gentleman mm. in the original, is turned into a representative of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the aristocracy? and given an incredibly strong, highly developed profile of, if not, he's not the military man, his brother is the military man, and they both represent this unbelievably ancien regime. That's not in the original. The duel is there. In Letter of an Unknown Woman, adapted from Stefan Zweig, Offal's switched the story around so that the unknown woman, Lisa as she's called in the film, marries a military man who then challenges Stefan to a duel in which he's going to be killed. Original story, no military man, no duel. <laughs> Just the compulsive womanizer sits there in his chair at the end having read the letter and cannot remember her. He says it's like some fragment of something, as though you were looking at water flowing over stones, but he couldn't remember her. Mm. So Offrels made, repeated the adaptation that he'd done in the Schnitzler play in Hollywood in 47. Why? Third question, adapting Madame Du. At the end of Madame Du, she dies of broken heart, but she takes off her earrings and on one side of her bed is her husband, on the other side of her bed is her lover and she gives them each one of the earrings. Offals turns the whole story around and once again turns what's Monsieur De into the 
unbelievably wonderful general uh, and brings this whole military um, iconography into it and brings in the duel, which is not there in the original story. So this was one of the reasons why very recently my interest in Offals has come back mm. into thinking about this question of how he adapted these different stories, which I wrote about in that essay that Sophie's got in front of her, so she knows this story, whereas <laughs> Lee is looking su sufficiently surprised. You didn't know this No, that's story. just my permanent expression. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that these adaptations had taken place? I, I had no idea. No. That's very so you see how fascinating it is. It is. Yes. In terms of his biography, he mm. was uh, a Jew who fled Germany, uh, ended up in, in Paris, and then fled Paris to America. How do you feel this influenced his, his work? Where I see a direct political influence is more, strangely enough, in Liebelei, which he made in Berlin. If you read his autobiography, he gives a number of instances of how he saw the return of the ultra-right of the First World War coming back in the late 20s and early 30s, mm -hmm. and the fear that was beginning to affect people. He doesn't see it so much in terms of his Jewishness, and he didn't feel that he was in danger until a number of his friends, and one of them, someone who belonged to the fascist party, told him to leave immediately. And then there was the Reichstag fire, mm -hmm. and he left with his wife and Marcel immediately, and just was able to see the lights going up to announce the opening of Liberlei. And then they got the train to, to Paris. Yeah. So it seems to me that in militarizing Liberlei and resurrecting the monstrous ghost of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he's saying something about his contemporary Germany. He also adds a whole scene, which I find one of the most moving scenes in the whole moving movie, which is when Theo, uh, played by Willi Eichberger, stands up against the duel. That was invented. That's not in the original at all. So that pacifist statement against the authoritarianism and rigidity of the military codes of dueling was something Offals actually put in the film, though it was very much in the, in the spirit, I think, of Schnitzler. So there, I think, there's an absolutely direct political statement. Mm -hmm. If he'd been able to stay on, if he'd had the flourishing career in Ufa that he should have had, he would have been one of the masters of modern cinema. I mean, I think he is, but the fact is that he had to start his career again once, twice, three times. Mm. Each time he was struggling from scratch. When he arrived in Paris, all he had was the fact that Liberlei had been a success in Paris. That was what they call nowadays his calling card. Yeah. And out of that, he had to start more or less from the beginning. He also got the break of going to Italy, invited by Angelo Rizzoli to make La Signora di Tutti. And he made a number of really interesting films in France that are quite hard to see. But I think you see him there just literally trying to work. Mm. Later in the 30s, he worked for the French army 
making anti-fascist broadcasts into Germany. So he was actually a well-known anti-fascist, which was one of the reasons why he was in enormous danger mm. at the time of the fall of France. And he, as so many others had done, had to flee across the Pyrenees and round to Lisbon and get the boat from Lisbon to the US, where he'd invested an enormous amount of hope. But Offals was literally the last of the exiles. Mm. He was the last of the refugees to arrive in Los Angeles. And it took him a long time to get work. Well, he, didn't, didn't, he didn't make a film for four years. It, it's, it's very interesting that after a seven-year uh, period of, of no credits to his name, his first film, his first English language film that he makes in America is called, quite appropriately, The Exile. Yes. With the wonderful uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Yes, yeah. so, so wonderful. But I appreciated him. Yeah? Yeah. But it has nothing to do with the exilic yeah. experience of Eastern Europeans. No. It's Charles it's, it's II. Charles Stewart, and yeah. it's a sort of a romp. Yeah. yeah, it is a romp. And it's interesting that this, I mean, this period of, like, I love his early work so much and I love a lot of the films he made in that middle period I think uh, Yoshiwara is is yeah. a beautiful film that he made in in 37 mm. but when we get to this American period mm. I feel like it's tantamount to heresy to, to, to refer to a great European director and say I love his American work the most but there's something about like he, he tilts towards I don't want to say the, the pulpy but there's something a bit more um, I don't know well a bit more pulpy about the films he makes from from this point on, uh, films like The Exile and, of course, The Great Letter from an Unknown Woman, and my favourite of his films, uh, Court, yes. and The Reckless Moment. And The Reckless Moment, which I think is probably my favourite. Yeah? Yeah. And, f yeah, fantastic films. Four films made in the US before he, he heads back to Europe. Mm. Um, and I think the point that I would like to labour here is the way that his work in Hollywood however much we might love it, was getting blood out of a stone. Mm. There was a battle of wills between Offals, his semi-defenders, his uh, producers, and the people who, were, uh, who got him involved with the movies, William Dozier, Joan Fontaine, John Houseman, but at the same time the pressure enormous pressure to make a conventional American film. And Lutz Becker describes the way that the, that the incarnation of the pressure was personified by the editor, almost offers his um, nemesis. Because oh. he felt that this style of long takes and camera movements was essentially un-American, and that the American people would not like this kind of cinema. So his aim all the time is to shave off as much as he could from the beginning and end of every shot, and if possible to do a cutaway. What I found fascinating was that for both um, Letter from an Unknown Woman and The Reckless Moment, Offals was brought onto the production by producers mm. who were married to the women who became the leads. And Offals mm. was seen as someone who could direct women spectacularly, create incredible roles. And yes. here were these producers giving their wives this mm. gift of working with this amazing director, first Joan Fontaine and then uh, the amazing Joan Bennett mm. in The Reckless Moment, who'd previously played much more hard-bitten 
noirish mm. characters, whereas in this she's supposedly respectable housewife, mm. who in one of my favourite shots across all of the awful films I watched, well, it's a sequence of a few long takes, goes out for a smoke one morning, finds a dead body mm. of her daughter's ex-boyfriend on an anchor, says, mm. oh well, gets a top, throws him in a boat, takes him off to the building site on the other side of the lake, throws him in the slurry, and boats back mm. to find her son who doesn't say, mum, what are you doing out on the boat at 9am? But yes. accepts this is a competent... She's almost like Gina Davis in The Long Kiss Goodnight. You expect at the end of the film to find out she actually has a forgotten past as a, a hit woman. <laughs> she, it's, she's really... And it's in this very stifling California a atmosphere, but she is almost a, a modern woman, one of the women from like The Perils of Pauline or something mm. like that, mm. who's... She's wearing this tweed coat and these sensible shoes, and every time James Mason, as the man who's been sent to extort money from her, looks at her, his eye, he's just so in love with her, <laughs> and she's so cool and calm and composed. I just, but that sequence, that silent sequence of her character yes. taking the body on the yeah. lake, mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever seen anything like yes. it in a noir because it is all about. And these he refuses tapes. later on. He refuses to believe she's done it. He says he was a big man. You couldn't have lifted him. Mm -hmm. Also, the way that. Offals uses James Mason has an enormous amount to do with this, the way he uses his beauty and his touching qualities. And the sequence where he phones Lucia from the station to say, it's all right, someone has confessed, it's no, no problem. The whole conversation is on his face. You don't have any cutaway to her, nothing. It's just him. And it's the most extraordinary evocation of a man in love. And so back in France, Laurent. Yes, Vendetta. but I think one has to say that he would have loved to have stayed on in Hollywood, mm -hmm. but he knew that he had no future. Yeah. And just to go back for, to Lutz Becker for one more time, Lutz Becker points out, I think in a very, very interesting way, that the way that Douglas Sirk could masquerade as uh, an all-American director, in spite of the fact that he brought all kinds of extra oddnesses and interest to his melodrama, you don't necessarily think that this is a film made by an incredibly sophisticated European exile with all that experience in the theatre, whereas with Offals you do. Mm. Um, I saw Letter from an Unknown Woman when I was um, in undergrad, I think because I was studying Schnitzler and Zweig and those writers, and I remembered the film being in German. So when I re-watched it, I was so surprised. Even though I remember mm. Joan Fontaine being in it, I remembered it having been in German. Right. And then here it was, and it was in English, and I had to go back and look at the history and say, no, this was a film that he made in America, because it has a, a sort of sophistication about what love is and what desire is and how people conduct themselves that seems so... Even compared to Howard Hawks's film, which, which do have this you know, lovely sophistication about who people are to each other. It's understanding of what sex was, and of course he had to find his way around the Hayes Code to mm. make a film about mm. a woman who has a child with a man to whom she's not married. Of course she has to be punished for it in this version. Um, I, no, I'd but I do it think we European. need to say, I do think we need to say, in the original Zweig story, she does of course die. But I think what had to happen was the marriage. There had to be a marriage. And so that's one of the reasons why a husband is brought in and invented. But it doesn't completely answer the question of why he's a military man. 
anyway, so let's carry on. So let's let's go back to France. Mm. La Ronde in 1950, and Vendetta in 1950, Le Plaisir in 52, The Earrings of Madame Day in uh, 1953, and his final film, Lola Montez, in 55. La Ronde, uh, back to Schnitzler, mm. one of his mm. early inspirations, but in a very different time. It's 1950, mm. he's in France. This extremely light-hearted, highly stylized film, which begins with uh, the MC, the Master of Ceremonies, played by the divine Anton Warbrook showing us that he's on a film set and showing us the cameras and the lights and the setup. Very, very important film for Alphonse because it was a big success. And so at last he had a success. We have to remember that none of the American films were successful. None of them made money. La Ronde, at last, was box office. And that gave him a, a new confidence and a new place in the French industry. The other reason that I think La Ronde is very interesting as his first film, back to Schnitzler, back to that Viennese fin de siècle, which I think he was attracted to because it's somewhere floating or hovering between the Ancien Régime and the modern, which I think is one of the reasons why he goes back to that period so often because they're the questions about what kind of modernity will the future hold, which is poignant because people knew by that time that there would be two world wars, and both of which he witnessed. But I think one of the key things about La Ronde is you see absolutely materialised Offals' interest in repetition. It's about sex as repetition and sex as compulsion. And that can perhaps just take us back quickly for a moment to Letter from an Unknown Woman. In the original Stefan Zweig story, the lover, the womanizer, is a writer. But to make him a pianist brings in the whole question of compulsion, you know, the need to rehearse, the need to repeat. And so this sense of seriality is really invested in Stefan's character and then extended to his erotic obsessions as well. And then you begin to get the repetitions two weeks at the railway station. You begin to see some of the scenes from Liebelei, the opera comes back, the railway station comes back. Howells, in a sense, took pleasure in repetition. And so, to what extent, by the time he gets to what you might call his late films, of the last French period, to what extent was he actually interested in repetition as a formal strategy, with the way that on the one hand it could be seen as the Faberge egg, oral elaboration and empty underneath, but on the other hand you could say that repetition and the compulsion to repeat is one of the kind of key drives of the human psyche mm. in its unconscious uh, manifestations. So you could take this interest in repetition in either, either direction. And of course in Madame de repetition comes back, in Lola Montez there's a constant kind of iteration of words and images. And that kind of iteration of language you then see goes right the way back to Liebelei as well. And maybe a good way to move to Mazando, which has one of the most incredible cinematic evocations of love in 
a sequence that is entirely composed of repetitions mm. as Louise, who is the Madame de of the played title. Played by the divine Daniel Darieux. Played by the divine Daniel Darieux, who has a small role in La Ronde. Yes. The first time that Offal's worked with her. As she uh, falls in love with uh, Baron Donati. Yes. Very aristocratic. Played unbelievably by Vittorio De Sica. Yes. Associated by this point with the the beautiful austerities of Italian neorealism, but with a long career as an actor in Italian cinema behind yes, him. because um, his first appearance on screen in Gli Uomini Che Mascalzoni, the Mario Camerini film of the early 1930s, 1931, you see Vittorio De Sica appearing there, and mm -hmm. so it's wonderful to think of him appearing in Madame Dieu, but also to the rest of Europe, at any rate, was the sine qua non of neorealism. And but here he is a silver fox, who's <laughs> one of the most urbane, suave, sophisticated, absolutely delightful characters. And he and Dario are incredibly well matched in the sequence where at ball after ball they dance closer and closer into each other's hearts, exchanging just a few phrases that are repeated from week to week, which mm. encode all of the passion that pe the people in this very highly rigid formal society yeah. can't express honestly and it's absolutely devastating <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, when they, it, they revisit the ball much later and the whole story of the earrings comes out and rather than dance with her he abandons her yes. and it's one of the most I think gossing moments in cinema for me. I don't think I can go in now into the way in which uh, Offal's is adaptation of these stories uh, had to, its relationship to sexual politics, but there seems to be a way in which he is working through each time conflicting concepts of masculinities, one which stands for the patriarchy and the other the seducer, the womanizer, who represents the actual power of eroticism, who actually can play on the way that women's love, women's emotion, women's success is not containable within what Lacan would call the symbolic order. And so the womanizer, in a sense, as it were, exploits the woman's love of love. It's the question of class. Offal's explained to Daniel Darieux that the character that she's playing is a completely empty figure. She's nothing. So he says to her at one point, uh, Danielle, with all your intelligence and your sophistication, did you find that good? You, you have to convey the emptiness of this character. Anyway, so we can go on now to Lola. Which I think is a good lead-in to Lola, who's a character who's had a character based on a real Irish dancer who has traversed the century and known kings, composers, conductors and is now a sort of fixed symbol of herself performing in a circus in New Orleans. A bit of the history that I believe Offal's invented as this circus act retells her life, which is a fascinating idea that audiences have come to pay to see her reenact through the medium of circus, her great loves and losses. Um, and it, this is Offal's first venture into colour. And widescreen. And it was such a box office failure mm. that the producers then re-edited it and re-released it. 
And uh, and yeah, he died of heart disease soon after, while it, just as he was starting to shoot the Lovers of Montparnasse. Uh, which ended up being completed by his friend uh, Jacques Becker. He actually died in, in Hamburg, or Hanover, uh, where he was directing Beaumarchais' The Marriage of Figaro. Oh. Yes, how do we reconcile these two stories? I, I don't know. I, I'm just going to bow to you. Pre-production is very complicated. You <laughs> could well have been in pre-production on Les Amandes de Montparnasse and, then, and direct. He'd and gone then, back to the theatre. The and also gone back to Beaumarchais, Marriage of Figaro, in the great Enlightenment drama, which then became one of the great operas of all mm. time. So there's something poignant about dying, well, with that moment of return. Mm. And having just signed off on one of the most expensive films in French history, uh, Lola Montez cost 648 million francs to make. And as Lee said, massively divided French French culture and media at that time with very uh, low box office returns, but a defence that was mounted by everyone that you would expect, Truffaut, Cocteau, Alexandre Astruc, um, which brings us back to, to what Laura was saying about offers being championed by Cahiers du Cinema, so they not only championed him in their own publication, they actually wrote an open letter to Le Figaro championing Lola Montez in its original cut. Um, a, a sort of almost quite a gallant act for a film that is about how a woman is betrayed by the media, she's created into this celebrity, she's sold into the circus, and they they defend it. And they I feel like it's a defence of a an older cinema, yes. um, Martine Carole, who plays Lola Montez, had a career in French cinema going back to Abel Gans and René Clair, and the composer of the film was the w amazing George Orich, who also composed the score for Belle et la Bête, and was one of Les Six, um, yeah. the avant-garde composers, so yeah. trying to recapture the modernist project yes. of pre-Second World War yes. French cinema as it was... Reinventing itself. That's a really interesting point. I also think that there's something about Lola's wandering life that has echoes of Offals' own wandering life and its ups and downs and having to pack up and move on, no money, start again, then suddenly being lifted up into a a certain success and then move on again. So it seems to me that there was a, could have been some parallel, whether he saw it himself or not, I don't know, but I think we are quite entitled to say that. But I'd wanted to just read this quotation from his great friend and collaborator Jacques Natanson, who was working with him on Lola Montez, and who said to barely about the film. Very obviously, Max was hoping to create a masterpiece. He was inspired, possessed. A scruple stopped me from holding him back. Was I wrong? Doubtless I was, because of the brutal stupidity of certain critics. The general public was scared away. Offals was mortally wounded by this blow. With a sad smile, he said, I'll get my revenge in twenty years in the cine club. And then, retrieving his ability to laugh, he said, unfortunately, I'll be dead in 20 years. Unlike the critics, he could see the future, but fate didn't give him five years to see his prophecies fulfilled. Alas, he only had two. Wow. Mm. And it's so tempting to imagine 
what he might have gone on to make mm, yeah. as as a, f- a figure of great importance for the French mm. New Wave, what enlightenment when he would have brought through this new, faster, dynamic cinema and, yeah. and the new liberalism and progressive politics that were returning as well yes, in the exactly. 60s. Yes. But he is, I think, the great filmmaker of regrets and memory, yes. thinking through your past life. So that seems like a great place to... It is. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank both of you very much, and thank um, Helen for hyphenates. <laughs> and we'll see the rest of you next month. <laughs> <laughs>